And today we are going to look at Acts chapter 6 to consider the, the role that deacons fulfill within the body of Christ, within the local church. So Acts chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 1 to 7 uh, this morning to frame our considerations. I hope you've turned there, and I hope you will follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1, Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time of considering his word this morning. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, please illuminate our hearts and minds this morning by your Holy Spirit that we would understand the things that you have revealed in the scriptures concerning your church, concerning the way the church ought to serve one another. Lord, please magnify Christ among us, not only in this moment of preaching from the scriptures, but also, Father, in the ministry that you have established here, the ministry of members, the ministry of elders, the ministry of deacons, Help us, God, to have our church ordered and structured in such a way that each member can fulfill his or her role in the life of the body so that the gospel would go forth and be made known. Lord, please keep me from error. Please grant your church discernment, God, that we would hold fast to the faith until the day that Christ returns. And in his name we pray. Amen. God builds his church by his word. That's one of our convictions here at Fisherville, that God builds his church by his word. We draw this conviction from scripture itself. In the Old Testament, for example, God built his people Israel by his word. Abraham was given God's word of promise. Israel was constituted at Sinai by God's covenant word. And the prophets corrected the people through the word of the Lord uttered with prophetic speech. Israel's history confirms to us that God always builds his people by his word. And that conviction goes deeper in the New Testament. Jesus Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, is the word made flesh. And through the testimony of his apostles, Christ has given us his word written. So when we say that God builds his church 
by his word, we are on rock-solid footing. From beginning to end, Scripture itself testifies to this truth. God always builds his people by his word. Based on this conviction, we ought to be vigilant then against anything that might weaken the centrality of the word. The quickest way to short-circuit a church is to put something other than the Bible at the center of the congregation's life. Of course, when I say that, you probably quickly think of things like persecution or, or pragmatism that weaken the ministry of the word. Persecution attempts to silence the voice of Scripture and pragmatism replaces the Bible with techniques. So both can quickly weaken the centrality of the Word of God. But there's another way to weaken the Word's centrality, and and it's it's a danger that I'll argue is far more prevalent in, in local churches. It's the danger of something good supplanting what is essential. It's the danger of necessary concerns overruling foundational priorities. To say it a different way, churches often lose their focus on Scripture not because of some deliberate decision, but because the needs of the moment cause them to drift from what should be of first importance. Our passage today in Acts chapter 6 is a prime example of just such a moment. As you heard in our reading, the church in Acts 6 is experiencing continued growth. It's one of the themes of the book of Acts, the at times explosive growth of Jesus' church. The word is bearing fruit. But there's a danger lurking in that growth, or at least a potential for one. You can see it in verse 1. A complaint arises regarding how the church cares for widows. The Greek-speaking members of the church are concerned that their widows are being overlooked in the church's administration of care. And understand, this, this is a serious issue for the church in Acts. This is precisely the kind of complaint that could undermine the unity and the testimony of the church. Imagine if the church were to fracture along ethnic lines. Imagine if the result of this is that we have a Greek church and a Jewish church. That would be very, very bad. But think one layer deeper. What else does the complaint in verse 1 threaten? Well, it threatens the very thing that is building this local assembly. It threatens the ministry of the word. This is a classic example of what we might call the tyranny of the urgent. As the complaint grows louder, the apostles would feel the pull to leave off teaching the word of God in order to deal with what is a very legitimate need in the church, how to care for the least of these. In that sense, our passage in Acts 6 is an example of this very prevalent danger in our churches, the danger of something good, we have to care for one another, the danger of something good supplanting the essential, the danger of the necessary overruling the foundational. That's what's happening in verse 1. Thankfully, though, that's not the outcome in Acts 6. The church does not fracture, the foundational does not get set aside. Instead, the apostles institute 
a wise strategy to care for both the spiritual and the physical needs of the body. That's really the heart of today's passage. If you want to know where we're going in this sermon, here it is. Acts chapter 6 shows us how a wise church structures itself to meet practical needs while also maintaining spiritual priorities. That's what we learn from Acts, how a wise church structures itself to meet practical needs and also maintain spiritual priorities. That's why we are focused on this passage for our sermon on deacons. I'm sure that you noticed the word deacon is not mentioned in Acts 6. And that's true. This is not the founding of the office of deacon. This text does not give us the qualifications for deacon, or at least not as fully fleshed out as 1 Timothy does. But Acts chapter 6 does establish the pattern for diaconal ministry. The office isn't in this passage, but the purpose is. Right? The title isn't in this passage, but the shape of the ministry is in this passage. Just like the seven men in this text, deacons ensure that good things don't supplant the foundational thing. Deacons ensure that the necessary doesn't overrule the essential, the preaching of God's word. So if there's a single takeaway, a one-sentence summary of what I want us to learn about deacons today from this message, that one sentence would be this. Deacons serve the practical needs of the church for the sake of the word. Deacons serve the practical needs of the church for the sake of the word. That's what a deacon does. In that sense, Acts chapter 6 is a wonderful picture of how a wise church structures itself to meet practical needs and maintain spiritual priorities. And that's where we're going to go this morning. For our time together, we're going to consider these verses with an eye towards implementing the same kind of wise practices in our congregation. There are three practices in particular in Acts 6 that deserve our attention. And along the way, I'll, I'll do my best to make some specific application as to how this wisdom can or maybe should be manifested through the ministry of deacons within a church. So three wise practices from Acts chapter 6. Let's start in verses 1 and 2 with the necessary starting point. A wise church prioritizes the spiritual feeding of the body. That's number one. A wise church prioritizes the spiritual feeding of the body. We've already touched on the challenge facing the early church, but it bears a bit more observation. So notice the challenge of growth in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. As we said a moment ago, the challenge in verse 1 is both real and serious. The church is struggling to carry out its responsibility to care for its members, specifically widows. The Old Testament advocated that the community of faith care for widows, and the New Testament took that conviction and made it deeper. But here in verse 1, here in verse 1, the church is struggling to fulfill that model. The model of caring 
for members is breaking down. The church is growing so quickly that the administration of care can't keep up with the increasing number of people. And this is, this is something of a perfect storm in the early church. This is key for understanding the rest of the passage, so, so please follow me here. The church, in verse 1, is growing numerically. But what do more people bring? More needs. And what do more needs require? More attention. And therein lies the challenge. What is causing the church to grow numerically? What is bringing these people in? The ministry of God's word. I mean, look back just one verse. Verse 42 in Acts chapter 5. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease doing what? Teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So the word is doing its work. It's drawing the people of God. It's bringing in God's people, but that increase of numbers is creating a bottleneck, so to speak, in the church's administration of care. More people equals more needs. More needs requires more attention, and more attention could potentially distract from the very thing that is causing the church to grow, the ministry of the word. With that in view, you can better understand how the apostles respond. Notice how they respond when the complaint is raised. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said to them, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This seems like a straightforward verse, but there's a, there's a quick way to misunderstand it. So we, we need to think carefully here. When the apostles say it's not right to give up preaching, the sense is that it's not pleasing. It's not pleasing to give up preaching in order to wait tables. Okay, well, not pleasing to whom? You might think it's not pleasing to the apostles. They just don't want to do this. They don't want to have to serve tables. They don't want to give up preaching. You might think it's not pleasing to the apostles, but that's not the sense at all. It's not pleasing to God. It would not please God for the apostles to give up preaching the gospel. Why not? Because of that context that we just noted in verse 1. Because the preaching of the word is what gives the church life. To neglect the word would be to turn from the very thing that is causing the body to grow in the first place. That's the apostles' point in verse 2. They're not being harsh. They're not being insensitive. They're not being dismissive. They're maintaining right priorities. God's plan is to build his church through his word. And that plan cannot be set aside. Even when pressing needs arise, God's plan is always for the word to remain central. Of course, the apostles will go on to plan to meet the church's physical needs. They are not dismissive of the complaint in verse 1. But they are also not willing to fudge on their primary calling, which is the ministry of the word. So it's not that physical needs are insignificant, far from it. But in answering those needs, the church must maintain the right priorities. And that's that's perhaps the key takeaway from these first two verses. This is kind of foundational stuff, but it's good that we remind ourselves of what is foundational. Central to every church's life is the Word of God. Come what may, we must not lessen the centrality of hearing God's word. 
Why is that? Why is the Word central? Because this is how the church lives. Through His Word, God calls the church to life. And through His Word, God sustains the church in its life. Each week, as a congregation, our priority ought to be to gather under the Word of God to worship Christ. In doing this, we are not simply going through the motions of what churches have always done. We're not following tradition. We're feeding on the Word of God. We're being nourished by His Word. Through the Scriptures, God nurtures our faith, which is so often weak, so that it will remain steadfast to hold, to hold on to Christ. Through the Scriptures, God corrects us so that our eyes are continually open to the dangers of sin and the need for repentance. Through the Word of God, Christ Himself is equipping us so that we become the hands and the feet of ministry. Brothers and sisters, that's why we're here today. We're not just having a church service. We're feasting on God's Word. Because this is how we live. We must not lessen the centrality of hearing God's word. That's why we prioritize the scriptures because this is how the word of God lives. The one thing, the one thing, and I mean it as explicitly as it sounds, the one thing that the church needs to live is the word of God. And therefore, therefore, a wise church prioritizes the spiritual feeding of the body. That being said, is my microphone going in and out? Do y'all hear it going in and out? It's going in and out of my ears. Okay, these people are saying yes, these people are saying no. I'm just going to have to talk loud. That being said, a church's physical needs are just as, as real as the spiritual need. Let's remember that we are, we are not Gnostics. We do not believe that the spiritual and the physical are somehow pitted against one another. The one being real and the other not. Is that it? Drake, should I switch to this? I hope not. Because I do too much of this. Church's physical needs are real. So yes, we prioritize the hearing of the Bible, just as the Apostle said in verse 2. But part of God's wisdom in planning His church is that we exist as a body, right? We're not just one member, we're many. And through those many members, we carry out the various aspects of ministry. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 6. So look at verses 3 and 4, and let's notice the second practice of a wise church. A wise church, number 2, plans for the practical needs of the body. A wise church plans for the practical needs of the body. After acknowledging the priority of the word in verse 2, the apostles quickly plan to meet the physical need. They don't neglect it. They plan to meet it. And their plan is simple. The congregations should set apart a number of qualified servants. Notice verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you Seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I love this moment in the life of the early church. I know it's only one verse. I know it's only one verse. But verse, verse 3 rewards some reflection. So let, let's just linger here for a second and notice how timely and how valuable this plan is in verse 3. For one, the plan is, is just remarkably wise as we've already highlighted. 
It allows the apostles to remain devoted to their calling. It doesn't distract from the ministry of the word. I mean, look at verse 4. The apostles say, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The, the word devote is the key. It implies persistence to the point of being busy with something. And that's what the apostles need to do. They need to be busy with the word and with prayer. Oftentimes in our staff meetings, when I'm talking with Hunter and Bill, we remind ourselves, what are we, brothers? We are ministers of the word and prayer. That's our role. And so when you don't know what else to do, pray and minister God's word to someone. Because that's what your calling is, fundamentally. But at the same time, the plan in verse 3 doesn't ignore the real needs of the body. The widows in the church need to be cared for. The apostles know this. So rather than neglect the teaching or ignore the need, they wisely plan to do both. To feed the church physically and spiritually. So the plan's remarkably wise. Along with wisdom, the plan is also strikingly humble. Notice that the apostles don't view themselves as the answer to every problem in the church. Did you catch that? They don't have to be the solution to this need. The body of Christ is multifaceted. There are many members, not just one member. And every member has been given a gift by the Spirit to serve the body. So by calling for qualified servants, the apostles demonstrate humility. They're not the answer to every problem. There are other people who can serve. So the plan is wise, it's humble. The plan is also purposefully practical. Practical. Notice that the, that the seven men are appointed to meet a specific need, the feeding of the widows. So the apostles don't offer some general well wishes and then hope that things work out. No, they plan for the practical realities of the moment. Specific needs require specific servants to meet them. The plan is purposefully practical. It's also appropriately responsible. It's wise, it's practical, it's humble, and it's appropriately responsible. Notice in verse 3 that the apostles specify the kind of servants the church needs. Men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom. Considering the nature of the need, this is a very responsible list of criteria. Remember from verse 1, the complaint, the complaint pits the Greek-speaking members of the church against the Aramaic-speaking members of the church. We don't know the full background to those two groups of people, but it clearly involved some aspect of culture and ethnicity. So whether it, was, whether it was a language barrier or legitimate cultural differences, the complaint in verse 1 is pretty volatile. That means whoever, whoever is appointed to deal with the complaint is going to need the right mixture of character, maturity, and wisdom. Okay, well look again at the plan in verse 3. Who should the congregation look for? Men of good repute, who are full of the, of the Spirit and wisdom. We don't have to make it overly spiritual. The church ought to look for servants that are fair-minded and faithful. Favoritism would exaggerate the problem, wouldn't it? So we need to have fair-minded servants who are faithful. At the same time, those, those servants need spiritual maturity and practical wisdom to administrate the church's resources in the best way possible. They need brothers who are both 
able to love God and to make a good system for getting people cared for. They need both of those things. All of that to say, all of that to say, the apostles' plan in verse 3 is not haphazard. They are not merely trying to clear their desk so they can get back to more important things. The plan in verse 3 is wise, it's humble, it's practical, and it's appropriately responsible for the moment. At this point, we're gonna, we can pause our exposition of Acts chapter 6 in order to make some specific application to our model of deacon ministry here at Fisherville. As I said at the outset, Acts chapter 6 is not the formal institution of the diaconal office. The, ti- the title deacon is not used in this text. And, and these seven men are not formally ordained to an ecclesiastical position. At best, what we have in Acts 6 is something that we might call proto-deacons. Right? Like the, the precursors of, of the office. So the full, the full embodiment of the office is not present. But the purpose is. The purpose of the office is present. The title is not here, but the shape of the ministry is. And that's what I want to focus on for just a few minutes. Based on Acts chapter 6, this is how I would describe the purpose of deacon ministry in today's church. Deacons are recognized servants who meet specific needs. Deacons are recognized servants who meet specific needs within the body. Let's draw out two points from that statement. Servants and specific needs. Let's draw both of those out for a minute. At the core, at the core, deacons are servants. Deacons are servants. They do not fulfill any governing function within the church. They're not responsible for the teaching ministry of the church. That's what distinguishes deacons from elders. Elders lead the church through the ministry of the word. They exercise oversight. Deacons serve. Deacons are responsible to serve the needs of the body. I said a moment ago that the title deacon is not used in this passage, but the related verb is. And that related verb is to serve in verse 2. At the core, that's what a deacon is. He's a servant. He's a servant of the church. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't sound very appealing. Who wants to be a servant? And sadly, that mindset is far too common in evangelical churches. This is probably the closest that I'll ever get to a rant, so here it comes. We have gotten things really, really out of whack in our churches. We have elevated the so-called public gifts to some kind of super spiritual status. And we've relegated all of the other gifts to some kind of inferior position. So it utterly breaks my heart when I hear a Christian say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't teach a Sunday school class, I just serve in the nursery. It breaks my heart when I hear a Christian say, oh, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't do any discipling of anyone. I, I just help with the chair set up. That breaks my heart. Why? Because service is not a lesser ministry in the church. Meeting needs, meeting needs is not inferior to teaching a Bible study. 
Let's remember what Jesus said, brothers and sisters, in Mark chapter 10 that Joe read for us so helpfully earlier in the service. Let's remember what Jesus said. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. In the kingdom of God, servanthood is greatness. In the kingdom of God, servanthood is preparation for glory. So let's just put it out of our minds once and for all that only the public gifts matter. Put it out of your mind. That's worldly thinking that has no place in the church. Deacons are are servants, which is not something to look down upon. It's something to honor. And it's something to desire. Because those who serve, those who serve are first in the kingdom of God. The second point that I want to draw out focuses on specific needs. Deacons are servants who meet specific needs. And let me be clear from the jump on this one. What follows is an application that, is seek, that seeks to apply the principle of this passage to the practice of the church. So I'm not arguing that this is prescriptive per se. I'm, I'm saying we should take the principle from Acts 6 and we can apply it to our practice. So what I'm going to advocate for here is not the only way to structure deacons, but I am going to advocate that it's a wise way to structure deacons, a way that is shaped by the principle of this text. So here's what I think. In Acts 6, these seven servants are appointed to meet a specific need, the feeding of widows. A church in our day should consider structuring her deacons in the same way to meet specific areas of need. So, for example, a church could elect a deacon of house and grounds who has particular responsibility for the upkeep of the church's physical plant. This deacon would not be responsible to do all of the maintenance and upkeep himself, but he is the chief servant in organizing and meeting those needs. So it's a deacon elected to a specific need. Another example, a church would consider electing a deacon of finance who has a particular responsibility to organize and plan and monitor the church's financial well-being. He would serve the congregation by taking a primary role in preparing the annual budget and he would coordinate with the elders in order to provide financial updates to the church. And in this particular example, a deacon of finance we would, look for, we would look for a servant who meets the biblical qualifications but also has the practical know-how, who can put together a balance sheet and can understand a bank statement and to help us exercise wisdom in what we do with our money. Specific areas of need matched by qualified servants. In this, in this model, we're seeking to take the principle of Acts 6 and apply it to the practice of our church. So rather than elect general deacons who have a broad menu of things that they're responsible for, we would first organize all of the church's practical needs and then elect servants to meet those needs. House and grounds, finance, security, audiovisual, shut-ins, visitors and guests, chair setup. The list would go on and on. We would organize our needs and then find servants to fill that. The point is that this model kind of flips it on its head and instead of thinking broadly, we think specifically. 
we aim for specific needs so that much like Acts 6, the church's servants, the church's deacons, know which needs they're responsible to meet. Friends, I see, I see a lot of wisdom in that model. Is it different than how some Baptist churches have organized their deacons in the past? I mean, perhaps, but history's long, and different isn't always bad. Sometimes difference brings wisdom, and I would say that's the case here. Deacons are recognized servants who meet specific needs within the church. In this way, a wise church plans for the practical needs of the body. What's the benefit of doing it this way? Let's say that we agree with the principle from Acts 6 and we want to adopt that principle in our practice. What's the benefit? How does that pattern from Acts 6 bless a church? Well, that's where we want to turn at the end. From verses 5 to 7, a third blessing, a third practice, a wise church thrives through the unified ministry of the body. That's number three. A wise church thrives through the unified ministry of the body. Verse 5 is a wonderful picture of effective leadership in a church. Listen again, verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Remember from verse 2, the apostles said it was not right, it was not pleasing to God to neglect the ministry of the word. Remember that? Well, now in verse 5, the apostles' plan is pleasing to the congregation. They see the wisdom. The congregation selects seven qualified servants who are commissioned by the apostle in the following verse. Five of the seven are unknown in the rest of the New Testament. We don't hear any more about them. Stephen and Philip, however, go on to be the key figures in the next section in Acts. So their service was not limited to caring for widows. All seven men, however, all seven of them are fitting choices to serve the church. Remember from verse 1 that the complaint arose from the Hellenists, from the Greek-speaking members of the congregation. Well, each of these seven men have Greek names, meaning they were fitting selections to serve this particular need within the body. They weren't going to rile up division at all. The overarching takeaway, again, is wisdom. The congregation is pleased and they participate in the wise plan. Verse 6 describes the commissioning of the servants. The apostles recognize the men through the laying on of hands, and the seven take up their post to serve this need within the church. Some people see verse 6 as the beginning of ordination, the practice of ordination. I doubt that verse 6 is that formal. Rather than formal ordination, this appears to be more like a congregational commissioning, a public recognition of service to a particular office. But discussing ordination is beyond the, the, the scope of this sermon. The point that I want us to note is the effective leadership. Verse 6, effective leadership. The apostles proposed the plan, the congregation agreed, and the seven are commissioned. That's a picture of a faithful, effectively led church, congregation-wide. And the result is a church that flourishes under the word of God. Look at verse 7 
which is the significant conclusion to the entire scene. Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of God continued to increase. That's a flourishing church, brothers and sisters. A church where the word is increasing. In fact, that description, increasing, is the same word from verse 1. So if you think about the passage as a whole, and verse 1 and verse 7 are the bookends, they both use this word, increasing. The complaint arose in verse 1 just as the number of Disciples was increasing. How would the apostles respond? Would they be able to meet the need? Would they maintain the priority? Verse 7 answers, yes. The word continued to increase so that the disciples would continue to increase. Please don't miss that fitting conclusion there in verse 7. The growth of the church was due to the word of God. And now, through the service of these seven servants the ministry of the Word continues. It's not too strong to say that the Word increased because the servants stepped in to meet the church's needs. The servants fed the church physically so the apostles could feed the church spiritually. And that's the point that I want to conclude with. It's clear all through the book of Acts that the Word of God builds His church. It's clear here in chapter 6. It shows up again in chapter 8. It's present in chapters 12 and chapters 13 and chapter 19. From Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, the word of God builds the church. Praise God. Praise God. But don't overlook the role that service plays in that continued growth. Because the seven fed the church physically, the apostles could feed the church spiritually. Without the practical ministry of the seven, the church would not thrive. But through that ministry, the word continues to increase. Brothers and sisters, that's the value of deacons in a church. Deacons serve the practical needs of the body for the sake of the word. In Acts 6, that involved feeding widows. In our church, it could take any number of forms. Any number of forms. The point, though, is that service in whatever area it is displayed ensures that the congregation continues to hear the word of God. So deacons are not the same as elders. Deacons are not responsible to shepherd the flock of God. Deacons are not responsible to uphold the ministry of teaching. But that in no way makes a deacon's ministry any less vital. In fact, the elder's ministry can't go on without the ministry of the deacons. It can't go on. That's the purpose, that's the role of deacons within a local church. They serve the practical needs of the body for the sake of the word. And when a church is structured this way, when a church is ordered the way that it ought to be ordered, the gospel flourishes among us. Listen, I know that we're in the midst of this series on the church and why you know, particulars about the church matter. And so I know that each Sunday we're doing a lot of nuts and bolts kind of thinking about church structure and church governance. And we need to do that. It's a necessary thing that we have to do. But let's not lose sight of why church structure matters. 
Why are we doing this sermon series? Why does church structure matter? It matters because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a congregation is well-ordered and functioning as she ought, then the gospel remains central. The fact that the elders don't have to be concerned with setting up the chairs and printing the bulletins and unlocking the facility means we can devote our time to preaching God's word as we ought to. When a church is structured the right way, the gospel remains central. The preaching of Christ and Him crucified remains the focus. The hope of the resurrection intersects with people's real lives. The forgiveness of sins and the call to godliness. All of those glorious realities of the gospel have their effect in a church that's well-ordered. That's why church structure matters. Not because we want to have all the T's crossed and I's dotted, but because we want the gospel to be the meal that we're all feasting on every Lord's Day. And it takes every part of the body to ensure that that happens. So whether it's members or elders or deacons, when each part is functioning properly, the body of Christ fulfills its calling, and that's to make Christ known through the preaching of the cross. So, may God continue to raise up servant-hearted members in our church And through the ministry of that service, may the word of God continue to increase, both here at Fisherville and to the ends of the earth. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've thought about many things today. We pray that you would bear fruit. We pray, Father, that your word would continue to shape and form us. We pray that we would follow, Lord, both the prescriptions and the principles of Scripture so that the gospel can remain central, so that we as a body, as a church, many members but one body, that we can fulfill our calling, which is to make Christ known, both here and to the nations. Lord, we pray, we pray that as we think about church and things related to church governance, that we would not do so disconnected from the gospel. It is of first importance that Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again and is returning one day. It is of first importance. And therefore, Father, we want to structure our ministries in such a way that it remains clearly of first importance among us. Please give us grace, God, and bear fruit. Unless you build the house, Father, those who labor, labor in vain, we pray that we would not